So we are currently in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're kind of coming to the home stretch. We just have a few weeks left. And so we're coming to the last section. So chapters 11 through 16, the remaining chapters, are an account of the final portion of Jesus's life and ministry leading up to his crucifixion. And at the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and it's in Jerusalem that his, the, the, his ministry and his mission come to a climax. And so the remainder of chapter 11 and then to end of chapter 12, we get this rapid-fire account of a number of confrontations Jesus has with the religious, their doubts and questions and objections. He's taking the fight to them. He's entered into the center of cultural and religious power that had become infected with empty and shallow practices and hypocritical leaders, and he's confronting it. See, one of the most common objections to Christianity is that Christians are hypocrites. Like, Jesus is cool. I can be cool with Jesus. But Christians, the church, man, they talk of love. They talk about grace. They talk about forgiveness. All I see is pride and greed, and judgment, abusive control, covering the sins of leaders, not concerned with those who are hurting and poor and downtrodden, more concerned with image and the appearance of being right than actually loving and serving others. Maybe you've heard people talk about the church and Christians like this. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You're like, yep, I agree with all of that. Now, let me be honest. To some degree, that is a smokescreen. Like, like for some people, it's just a smokescreen. They, they start hearing the gospel preached. They hear, hey, you need to repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, follow Christ, let go of like, all, all of your sin and all your baggage, follow Jesus, make him the Lord of your life, and we can throw up the smokescreen. I ain't going to follow Jesus to the church because Christians are hypocrites. Okay? I acknowledge that. Smokescreens. However, in church, we need to be honest about this. Too often, sadly, that charge against us is true. Too often, there is hypocrisy and pride and greed in the church. Too often, we're more concerned with our image and being right than we are about loving others and serving others. Too often, we're given over to our comfort and church becomes a method of entertainment rather than following Christ and loving and serving other people. And do you know who hates hypocrisy? Do you know who hates corrupt leadership? Do you know who hates empty, shallow religious practice more than you and I? God does. Jesus does. God hates when his people are corrupted by leaders who would lead them down a path of false worship and false righteousness. God hates when his people become corrupted and self-centered and hypocritical. And here we see in Mark, Jesus cleaning house. Jesus showing the anger that God has towards this. But what Jesus is also doing is he is bringing renewal. Jesus is bringing renewal to the worship of God that had become corrupted through these religious leaders. And so this morning, I want us to look at a significant and important but often overlooked aspect of the mission of Jesus. And it's this. Jesus has come to restore true worship and true righteousness. See, God wants the hearts of his people to be pure, their worship to be faith-filled and sincere. He wants their righteousness to be true and their love to be genuine. God wants the leaders in his church to be faithful, sacrificial servants. 
And so the power of the gospel in our world and in our lives is hearts turned away from pride and hypocrisy and empty and shallow religion and towards sincere, heartfelt worship of God and love of others. And so I want to look this morning at parts of chapter 11 and parts of chapter 12 to look at what Jesus is telling us about worship and look at how the mission of Jesus reflects this, that he is bringing true renewal of worship and righteousness. So we're going to walk through some of these episodes, and then I want to talk at the end about some implications and applications for us. So let's begin walking through chapter 11 into chapter 12. And so we, we skipped over the first 10 verses, but in, ver- in chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with the story, you, you know that he enters in with shouts of Hosanna. The people are welcoming him in as a king. And he's riding in on this very humble donkey, but the reception he is receiving is that of a king. So Jesus is riding into the Jerusalem as a king, and so there's this sense of victory and celebration. And then in verse 11, it says that after he goes, enters into the city, he goes to the temple, but he goes there late at night when everybody has kind of gone to bed and gone home, and he looks around. And it's this really interesting moment where Jesus is doing some recon. He's sort of assessing the situation because tomorrow he's going to bring it. Tomorrow he's going nuclear. And so the next day he re-enters into Jerusalem. So this is just a little side note as far as geography. So it says Jesus and the disciples were staying at Bethany. This is basically a suburb of Jerusalem. And why is he staying out there? Well, it's the Passover week. And so Jerusalem has been flooded with worshipers celebrating the Passover. And so if you've ever been to a city where there's a huge event and there's not a lot of places to stay and you have to stay outside the city, well, that's why they're staying outside the city. So they would walk to and from Jerusalem each day. And so on the way to Jerusalem, he has this interesting interaction with a fig tree. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now what in the world is Jesus doing? What is going on here? Because cursing a fig tree, because it doesn't have any figs and it's not fig season. Well, why is Jesus doing that? Is he not aware of when figs actually grow on trees? No, this was common knowledge. Like he would have known this. See, in cursing the fig tree... Jesus is creating an object lesson, a, lesson a, a living parable, a physical parable for his disciples for what is about to take place in Jerusalem. So before they enter the city, Jesus steps up to this tree and he makes a model of what is about ready to happen when he goes into the city. See, though it wasn't fig season, the color and the fullness of the leaves of the tree would have made it look like it was in season. See, there there wasn't a difference between the way the tree looked just before the figs grew and when the figs were actually on there. So the tree had an appearance of being fruitful. But when Jesus got closer to it, he saw no figs. So from a distance, looks fruitful. Up close, not so much. And so Jesus is cursing the hypocrisy of this tree. See, what appeared to be true was actually not true. And this theme becomes important as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This is going to mirror the judgment he is about to pronounce on the temple. 
And so once they get into, they get into Jerusalem, things get heated. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So why is Jesus so worked up? Well, first, we need to understand that selling pigeons for the the sacrifices that took place in the temple is actually not a bad thing. There is actual biblical mandate and biblical warrant for the selling of pigeons, especially to those who are poor and couldn't afford a, a sheep or cattle, in order that they can make sacrifices to the Lord. However, they weren't supposed to sell them in the temple. They had brought all that commerce into the temple. And so a place that was supposed to be for reverent worship has now become this place of buying and selling and trade. Here's what else is going on. This had become a massive, massive economic enterprise. First century Jewish historian Josephus records that in the year this version of the temple that Jesus just entered, when it was completed in 66 AD, 255,600 lambs were sold and sacrificed just at Passover. That's one week. So if you can imagine the amount of buying and selling, the amount of livestock going through, it was, it was you think of like the livestock, the, the stockyards that used to be present in Omaha, and, and the amount of activity that was going on. You could say anything but worship was going on in the temple. This massive economic enterprise had overtaken, and you better believe people were getting ripped off. And so under the pretense of worship, under the pretense of religious ritual, hey, we need to sell these pigeons for sacrifice. The religious leaders were patting their pockets, and they turned worship into an economic activity. They turned worship into a business See, the temple was a place the presence of God dwelt with his people. The temple was where the place of atonement for sin was made. The temple was where the people met with God and experienced his loving, covenantal, renewing presence in a unique way. It was a place of prayer and reverence and worship, a place of healing and forgiveness, a place where people could experience life and the presence of God but under the system of the religious leaders, economic superseded worship. Business and commerce superseded worship. Worship had turned into this flippant, mechanical, rote, emptied of all life and meaning and passion, and it, and it had stripped away God as the center. What was the center in the temple? It was not the worship of the Lord. It was buying and selling. And so this is why Jesus walks in angry at what had happened, angry at what temple worship had become. Also recognize this. This was just a symptom of the larger problem. This was just yet another example of how the corrupt and hypocritical leaders of the Jewish people had brought down the worship of God and made it something sinful, made it something self-centered, made it something human-centered, So Jesus calls them out. 
And this place was meant for prayer and reverent worship, and you have turned it into a corrupt place to make money. And, and here, here's the thing. Let's not minimize what Jesus is doing. Like, Jesus didn't walk in and go, hey, guys, you should stop this. Please, please stop. Please knock it off. No, when it says he kicked over a table, what's that mean? He actually kicked over a table. He was knocking stuff down. He was preventing, he probably ripped things out of people's hands. He wasn't letting people pass through and carry things through the temple. And so he was stopping, physically stopping people. Jesus was worked up. So if you have this picture in your mind, Jesus was kind of like this Zen-like guru who never got angry. You don't get that from scripture. (laughs) I mean, this is Jesus going nuclear. He is fired up because the glory of his father is being denigrated. The glory of his father is being harmed. And he also knows because of the, this, this religious system that had been set up, the people were suffering as well. They were being formed and shaped into people who cared more about money and status and empty religious ritual than they did about the actual worship of God. Jesus is angry. Jesus cares passionately and deeply about the worship of his father. He carries passionately and deeply about the righteousness of his people. He's declaring no more. This stops now. Later, Jesus, or excuse me, I should say, as he is doing this, Jesus makes this statement. My house, or my, this house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And in this saying these words, but you have made it a den of robbers, he is quoting from Jeremiah 711 which says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So over 500 years before Christ, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and declares judgment on the people of Israel in the temple because they had corrupted worship. And after this proclamation by Jeremiah, what happens in history is Babylon invades and takes Israel into slavery and captivity and destroys the temple. And so this word from Jeremiah was a declaration of judgment on the temple, and Jesus quoting it is also a declaration of judgment. Jesus is judging the temple. He's judging the worship. He's saying, it's over, it's done. Later in chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark, he prophesies that the temple is going to be destroyed. And in 70 AD, Rome destroys the temple. What what Jesus declared in that temple, what he prophesied later, happens as a declaration that God does not tolerate this kind of worship. God does not tolerate corruption in hypocritical leaders who try to speak in his name. God is jealous for his glory. He cares deeply about holiness and righteousness. He desires that people would know him and worship him in spirit and in truth. And so understand this, Jesus the Messiah who brings forgiveness and healing and restoration is also Jesus the King who has come to defeat evil and tear down any system, any structure, any leadership that would corrupt the worship of God and corrupt his people. Jesus is confronting the very heart of the problem. Later in chapter 12, Jesus gets into a number of confrontations with the scribes. These are the religious leaders and they're hypocritical 
in predatory leadership. And he calls them out. He, he, as he's teaching in the temple, he, he points to the scribes, and this is what he says to the people. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He's pointing and saying, hey, look, your leaders, the theology experts, the ones who supposedly know the scriptures better than you and lead you in worship, beware of them. Don't be like them. Don't do what they do. And here's all the, the problems with the way they live their life. And at the end, they're going to receive a greater condemnation. Like judgment for them is going to be worse because they are leaders and they should know better. And their impact is more damaging. The scribes, they like to make a show of their position and authority. They like to wear fancy clothes. And it's not just fancy clothes. It was clothes that said, hey, I'm a scribe. They wore the robes that said, hey, look, there goes a scribe. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be known for their position. They loved to soak in the praise of men. But then they used their position to take advantage of people. They used their position to take advantage of the most vulnerable and weak, the widows. So it's praise me, praise me, praise me. Think I'm so awesome and great. And then when I get in with you, I'm going to take advantage of you. Listen to my beautiful prayers. Listen to me spout off wonderful theology. I mean, this is scary, folks. I mean, because these guys know the Bible better than anyone. Like, just because you know theology doesn't mean God has your heart. And the scribes were walking proof of that. Jesus opposes with divine power such men he opposes with divine power such leaders. The utter hypocrisy and abusive leadership and self-worship Jesus will bring down. So the morning after Jesus clears the temple, they once again are walking into the city and once again they walk past this fig tree. And Peter is astonished that the tree has withered away all the way down to its roots, completely dead. And here's the object lesson is complete. Just as Jesus cursed the fig tree that had the appearance of fruit but did not carry fruit, and that fig tree withered down to its roots, so the temple, though in appearance seemed to be carrying out the worship of God, held no actual spiritual fruit and would wither and be destroyed. And then notice the point that Jesus makes here when he's completing the object lesson for them. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So this is an interesting sort of move. Like he starts talking about a fig tree and then all of a sudden he's given a lesson in prayer and faith and belief. Now, there are multiple layers to what Jesus is saying. A number of things that, that are there and we don't have time to get in, into them all. But here's the heart of what Jesus is talking about. It's the heart. But he's calling people, hey, do you actually believe what you're saying? Do you actually believe what you're praying? 
You, you know, when you actually believe, what I did wasn't actually all that amazing. Because if you have that kind of faith, God does incredible things through you. But the point being is, is it true belief or is it empty ritual? Is, is it just going through the motions? Is it just show? Or is your heart actually in tune and actually in worship with who God is? And then when you're asking for forgiveness, are you forgiving? You want God to forgive you, but do you forgive other people? Are you actually humble in heart and repentant in heart? So the point Jesus is making here is this. True worship, true righteousness is an issue of the heart. Like we can go through the motions, people. We can check all the boxes. We can give all the right answers. But does God have our hearts? Do we really believe what we're saying? Do we really believe what we're doing? Do we really let God transform our hearts and renew us? That's Jesus' point. This heart-level belief comes up again in chapter 12. So as Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders, and some of them are trying to catch him in different theological debates, one of the scribes overhears what's going on, and he walks up to Jesus and asks a question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So again, Jesus is emphasizing the heart. What commandment? It goes at the heart. Like, you can go do a bunch of stuff, but if it's not done out of love, if you do not love the Lord with all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your heart, it's empty. And then what should be the fruit of that love for the Lord? Loving other people. Like, I don't care how much you tell me you love God. If you don't love other people, then the love of God is not in you, as we saw in 1 John. And so Jesus, again, with this moment, this softball question, points, hey, God wants your heart. This is a matter of the heart. Worship and righteousness are a matter of the heart. And the scribe sort of has this moment of clarity. And he says to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This scribe who was the religious leader who led people in all the religious activity got it for a moment. Hey, all this activity, it doesn't matter if I don't love God and love people. Like all this activity, that's not the point. That's not the substance. The substance is loving God, worshiping God, loving other people. And it's almost like the veil just lifted from the scribe for a second. And Jesus acknowledges that. It says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Like you have a good category here. Where we needed to fill in the blank though is connecting it to Jesus. To seeing that the way that he would love God and love others was through Jesus. And so Jesus sets up this confrontation with the, the religious leaders. He, he pronounces judgment on the temple. He pronounces judgment on their way of worship. He pronounces judgment on their leadership. He pronounces judgment on their corrupt, hypocritical worship and their false righteousness. But then he also points them back to where true righteousness is found. Where, where if we're going to walk in true worship and we're going to walk in true godliness, it's a matter of our hearts. It's a matter of being renewed 
in our hearts. So Jesus is the Messiah who has come to bring salvation. Like Jesus is the, he brings forgiveness and he brings healing and he brings righteousness and he, re, he brings renewal. And he's also the king who has come to defeat evil and tear down every structure, every system, every form of leadership that would corrupt worship and would corrupt his people. And there should be tremendous hope for us in this church. Like, does it bring you hope that God will defeat evil? Like there is a lot of pretense and a lot of false worship and the false righteousness. There is a lot of people who want to act in God's name, but underneath the surface is wickedness and pride and selfishness. You see people taking advantage of others. You see racism and sexism. Like there is a whole bunch of rottenness that runs through people who claim to speak for Christ and churches who claim to be the body of Christ. And we have hope knowing that they will not stand. Like whatever damage, whatever destruction, whatever pain, whatever suffering they inflict, God will bring it down. Look, I know some of you in this room, you wear the scars of those kinds of churches, those kinds of leaders. You've been burned, you've been hurt, you've been beat up. And if it were not for Christ holding on to you, you probably would have run away. And so I want you to see in this a powerful Savior who cares deeply about the evil and the suffering that people inflict. I want you to see that Jesus is not weak and ineffectual. Jesus is not indifference. Jesus cares deeply. And he will bring judgment to wickedness. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how painful it gets, he will end it. Because Jesus is also bringing renewal. Jesus is bringing new life. He's bringing new life to those who follow him and he's bringing new life to his creation. And so there's tremendous hope in this for us, church. But there's also a warning. There's also a, hey, take up, sit up and take note of what's happening here. You and I, we may never lead a massive religious system. We may never have massive influence. We, we may not think of ourselves in the same kind of leadership category as these scribes and these Pharisees and these chief priests. But make no mistake, the same sin that was in them lives in our hearts. Make no mistake that we are still prone and we are tempted by the same things. How often are you tempted to just go through the religious motions? How often do you want to just put on a religious air? Hey, I, I do all the Christian things. I come to church. I sing the songs. I read my Bible. I go to small group, gospel community. I, I do all the things that Christians are expected to do. Hey, I'm even a good person. But all of that is detached from actual love of God and love of people. How, how often do you want people to think you are righteous and you had all your ducks in a row and everything is going well for you? You, you put on this air that, hey, I'm, I'm, everything's good for me. I don't have any, any sin. I don't have any problems. And, and so you put on this false front. Like, this is, this is strange. This should be strange for us, church, because if we follow Christ, here's what we've acknowledged. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. 
And so if we walk around acting as if we don't need a savior anymore, we're denying the very thing we claim to believe. And so the same temptation is in us. Empty religious ritual. Empty religious practice that's disconnected from actual love of God and love of people. Or how about the ways that we can worship status and comfort and success and position? How how often are we living our lives and so that people think we're awesome and and, and we get position with people and, and we like the status that we get with people? How often do we use people to sort of fill our emotional needs? How often do we want the comfort that maybe religion brings or the comfort that Jesus brings? And so we'll, we'll go through the motions, we'll be part of a community, we'll, we'll make friends, but it's all about my needs, all about me, all about how I feel good. Let, let, me, let me just ask a question here. When you come here this morning, when you come on Sunday mornings, why? Well, why are we here? Like, look, make no mistake, there is comfort in God. There, there is joy in Jesus. There, there is, there is a, a, an emotional experience that you have. Your emotions are shaped. We should worship passionately and feel love and feel joy and feel sorrow. But there's a difference when we're outpouring and loving and, and, and it's a flow of worship than when it's just about me and my comfort. And so we can set up our whole religious life to be about us. So make no mistake, the same temptations live in our heart. We can use other people. And then just like the religious leaders, when the authority of Christ comes crashing in, when Jesus confronts us through his word or through another brother or sister or through the preaching or through something that you read, we can sort of push back and reject his authority. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, man, when Jesus upset what was going on in the temple, they went after him. They tried to discredit his authority. They tried to discredit his teaching. And every time they failed spectacularly. I encourage you to go back and read the rest of Mark 11 and 12. It's just a, it's a, it's an absolute exercise in dealing with foolish religious leaders. But the problem, the core heart of the problem is that they rejected his authority. And when you and I set up systems of worship, when we set up false senses of righteousness, we're stiff-arming the authority of Christ. Where our pride is building up in our hearts. And so we need to be careful of the ways that these things can live in us. We, we, we can perpetuate the very systems that we claim to hate. We can become the very hypocrites that we would rail against. And so the question becomes, are we perpetuating the system? Hey, yes, we're all guilty of it. Like, no one escapes this. Can we be honest? We've all been guilty of perpetuating the system. The question then is, are we running to Jesus in repentance and faith and wanting him to renew and change us? Or are we running away from Jesus and into deeper rebellion, deeper hypocrisy, deeper pride, deeper selfishness? The question before us is, do we want the temple of self to be torn down so that we can be renewed in righteousness? 
or are we going to stiff arm and fight and resist Jesus and that temple of self that he will bring down in judgment? One way or another, your temple of self is going to fall. The question is, will it be renewed or will judgment be the final word? Because here's the good news of the gospel. And I want to end with this. The good news of the gospel is that what Jesus tears down, he rebuilds. See, Jesus spoke of another temple in the gospels. He, he said, destroy this temple and in three days it will be raised anew. See, the temple is the place where the presence of God dwelt with the people. It, it was a unique spot where God's love and his covenantal blessings would pour out. And in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, there was the temple, there was God dwelling with the people. There was God pouring out his blessing through healing and forgiveness, casting out demons, pushing back darkness. There was the presence of God renewing people and showing him how to walk in true righteousness. And Jesus Christ, the temple of God, took on himself all the corruption that took place in that temple, all the judgments, all the, the wickedness, all that, that was brought to that physical temple, Jesus took on himself. See, for our corruption, our corrupt worship, our pride, our selfishness, for the ways that we use people, for, for, for the ways that we want to worship our status and our comfort and our success, for the way that we want to just make God about our own agenda, all of our rebellion, Jesus took on himself as if he was the one who was corrupted. Jesus took on his body, the temple of God, as if he was that corrupt temple that the religious leaders were running. And God judged him. He was crucified, hung up on a cross, and he died. God brought that temple down. But the good news is this. In three days, Jesus was resurrected. That temple rose in renewal. Forgiveness for all who believe in Christ. And so if you are in Jesus, here is the beautiful promise for you. You've been united to Christ and he gives you his spirit. And what does Ephesians 2 tell us? What is the temple of God now? Where does God dwell? Among his people. We are church. We are the temple. This is where God's spirit dwells. And so for us that put our faith in Christ, God tears down that temple of self but he renews us in something far greater and far more glorious and far more beautiful. He gives us his spirit. And in doing that, guess what happens? We're set free to love. We're set free to worship. We're set free to walk in true righteousness so that now we worship God. We, we worship God with our hearts and with our minds and with our strength. And when we don't, when, when we fall back into pride, when we fall back into selfishness, we can repent we can confess that sin because we don't have to put on a show anymore. We don't have to earn anything. We can just confess, yes, Lord, I've been selfish. Yes, Lord, I've chased after things other than you. And what's on the other end of that confession? Grace, forgiveness, mercy, and renewal. And then we're set free to love other people. Look, if I don't need you to fulfill needs in my heart, if I don't need you to build my identity... If I don't need you to build my success and my status, guess what? I can just love you for you. I can just be with you. I can say, I want to see you thrive. I want to see you know Christ. I want to see you built up because my identity is in Jesus. That is what happens when the Spirit renews us, church. 
It affects how we worship. It affects how we love. It changes us from people who are given over to self to people who pour out their lives. And so I want want us, church, to let Jesus do some house cleaning. Let's let Jesus transform what he needs to transform. Let's let him tear down what he needs to tear down so that we can be renewed. I don't want us to be a church shot through with the hypocrisy of pride and selfishness. I don't want us to to have to think we have to perform and hide sin. I want us to be open and honest. I want us to be able to confess one to another and experience grace and transformation. Look, we're always going to be battling the drift towards hypocrisy because we're sinners. We're going to sin. We're going to mess up. But the hope that we have is that when we walk in the light, when we confess those things, when we let God renew us, we won't fall into the trap of the religious leaders. We won't be consumed by worship of self. We won't be undone by false righteousness. As a church, where is Jesus needing to clean some house for you? Where is Jesus needing to do some restoration? Let's spend some time reflecting in prayer here. I don't want us just to go and run out quickly thinking, man, I got to go do all this stuff now. (laughs) No, our first move is to cry out for mercy. Our first move is to cry out for grace. Our first move is to say, Lord, I need you to renew me. I need you to transform me. It's to turn from our selfishness and our pride. And so just right where you are now, ask the Lord to reveal to you where are you walking in? Maybe hypocrisy. Where are you walking in empty religious tradition, empty religious activity? Where is your heart disconnected from how you're living your life? In what ways are you putting up a false front of righteousness rather than seeking the renewal that comes from confession and repentance? It is hard sometimes to be confronted with Jesus when he is bringing hard words. But never forget the same Jesus that cleansed the temple also said, come to me all who are weak and weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest so I just encourage you to confess whatever sins the Lord brings to your mind, knowing at the other end of that is grace.